Well, we're about six weeks out from the holiday season, and once we get to the holiday season, you're going to see every kind of opportunity to see a Christmas carol uh, on the television or theater or something. Since it was first published, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, since it was first published, it has been produced for theater, movies, television, radio, and opera. Over a hundred different unique productions of A Christmas Carol. And one of my favorite parts, uh, or I, maybe I should say intriguing parts to me, comes early in the movie when the specter or the ghost of Jacob Marley, Ebenezer Scrooge's partner in business, comes to visit Scrooge, and before you ever see him, you hear him clanking up the steps of Ebenezer Scrooge's home, and, and you can hear the chains as they rattle, those heavy, awful chains. And in their conversation together, Jacob Marley says this, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I guarded it on of my own free will, and by my own free will I wore it. Wow. Now, it's only a novel, but the image is nonetheless one to contemplate. What chains do we wear of our own making? What have we been shackled to by the choices and squandered opportunities of our past. You may not see or hear the chains, but I, I suggest they are there. As a matter of fact, we've been studying through the Israelites in Egypt, and, and we've kind of, at this point, up to this point, glossed over Moses a little bit. I want to come back and pick up Moses' life because I am convinced that Moses understood these very feelings. I think he knew his own chains. Now, when Moses was born, <clears throat> his parents, Amram and Jochebed, noticed that there was something unique, there was something special about this child. Sometimes when you're reading in Exodus, it will just use the word beautiful or fair, but it's actually a word that is, is much deeper than that. There's something unique, something special. This is no ordinary child. They were believers, strong believers, in the midst of this pagan society of Egypt, even in the midst of some of their own Hebrew people who had sort of abandoned their own heritage and begun to take on the look and the feel of the Egyptian nation where they had been for over 400 years. But Amram and Jochebed took the time to notice who their child was, and by faith the Word tells us they hid him for three months. Not, a, not an easy task. When every Hebrew male child was to be murdered immediately after birth. Now, I don't know if you've been around newborns much, but they cry a lot. And so for three months they hid him, and they hid his cry so that he would not be murdered. You see, the Egyptians feared that if too many Hebrew males grew up, they would overpower the Egyptian society. And what they did was they noticed we're not going to go with the law. We're not going to go with the dictates of a godless society. We are going to do our best to spare this child because this is no ordinary child. Amram and Jochebed were, were observant parents. Now, would, would you let me take a slight detour here for just a minute? Actually, I'm going to take the detour whether you let me do this or not. I'm just, I just want you to notice something here. I think there's an important lesson for us to be getting. God wants us as parents, and, my, and man, I also suggest as grandparents, to be observant. God wants us to know who our kids are. 
When we read in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, when we read that verse, we often interpret it this way. Okay, if I instill the godly values of, of my faith in my child's life early on, then when my child gets up, even if he or she strays from that, they will have a foundation to come back to. Now, I believe that would happen. If you instill in your children strong values, that foundation will always be there, and it gives them something to come back to when they realize that where they've gone doesn't answer life's questions. But that's not what this verse talks about. What, what this verse says is that you and I are to notice the bent of our child. The, the wording here is such that, that every child has a different bent to them. They have a different wiring. They have a different personality. They are gifted and talented in different ways. And it is the responsibility of a parent to see and to notice how that child is, is created by God. What, what, what the Bible is telling us is if you take the time to know your children like you should, then you can see, oh, he or she is gifted this way. I need to channel him or her in this direction so that how God has created him or her, they will be fulfilled in what they become as an adult. Notice the bent of your child. And sometimes as parents, we're so busy trying to establish our lives and get things off the ground. And we're so busy, we're chained to our work, we're chained to our social calendars, and we don't take the time to notice who our children are. Or worse yet, if we say, I don't care what they are, I want them to be this, you're only asking for disaster at that point in time. I read about a <clears throat> church in Florida who was trying to emphasize the importance of family time together. And so they were having once a month on Sunday evenings a family activity night. They would have like game night for families. They would have movie night for families. But what they noticed after a while was that parents weren't staying. They were just dropping off the kids at the door and the parents were going on to do something else, which defeated the whole purpose. What they wanted them to do was spend time together. And so the staff said, we got to change this. And so when they got ready for the next family event evening, this is the announcement that appeared in the bulletin. The magic of Lassie. A film for the whole family will be shown Sunday at 5 p.m. Free puppies will be given to all children not accompanied by their parents. <laughs> Sometimes God has to take extraordinary measures to get us to notice what's really important in life. Now, Amram and Jochebed were those kind of parents. They noticed, and so they hid him in a basket after those three months and set him afloat just upstream in the Nile from where the princess Pharaoh's daughter bathed, and of course, I, I can only imagine that Moses is crying in the basket as it drifts down to where the princess and her entourage are, and she notices the basket. She opens the basket. She recognizes that this is a Hebrew slave child, a male child, but he is so sweet as any three-month-old little infant would be. And at this time, Miriam, his older sister, steps out of the cattails and the bulrushes that she has been walking along the side of the river, and she says to the princess, she said, would you like for me to find a Hebrew nurse to nurse the child? And the princess said, that would be wonderful. And then when he's weaned, I will raise him as my own. And by the way, I will pay for him to be nursed. And so Miriam takes Moses back to her own mother, so Amram. Uh, and Jochebed get to raise Moses until he is weaned, and Moses' mother, Jochebed, is even paid by the princess to do what she would have done for free just to have her son's life. The story is filled with such ironic twists, but when he was weaned, he leaves to go to the palace, and there is raised as a son 
of Pharaoh's daughter. Grows up in the palace, but he never forgets his Hebrew heritage. At age 40, Moses kills an Egyptian out of an angry rage who is beating a Hebrew slave. He intervenes to save the slave's life, but he ends up killing the Egyptian in the process. And at that moment, he becomes a wanted man. As a matter of fact, his adopted grandfather, the Pharaoh, now wants him dead for his murderous deed, and he flees to the land of Midian. He leaves and crosses the desert. He finds a woman there by the name of Zipporah, marries her. She's the daughter of a Midian priest who is also a shepherd. He has two sons, and he spends the next 40 years as a shepherd in the shadow of Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. First 40 years, prince of Egypt. Second 40 years, shepherd in Midian. Now, at the age of 79, now we can only speculate, but at the age of 79, I can almost, I can almost hear this conversation take place in their tent around the supper table. Moses says, Sipporah, uh, you know, I, I think next year I'm just going to retire from this shepherding business. I'm, I'm getting tired, and, and, and I'll be 80 next year. Uh, I just can't keep up with the sheep like I used to. I'm getting tired, and, and, and all the dreams that I had for my life, well, they, they just didn't work out like I thought they were going to. And I think that you begin to see the change that Moses has been carrying for 40-plus years. I think he was chained to his guilt. After all, he had killed a man out of anger, and regardless of how Moses tries to justify it, as a prince in Egypt... He could have easily intervened with greater authority than the taskmaster over the slaves and spared the life of the Hebrew slave and not harmed the taskmaster. Might have embarrassed the taskmaster, but, but in his anger, it's not embarrassment, it's, it's murder that takes place. And Moses lives with that guilt. He's chained to that guilt. I think he's also chained to regret. Moses has to be thinking, I could have been the next Pharaoh. And had I become the next Pharaoh, then I could have released the Hebrew people and given them their freedom, and everything would have been wonderful. I think he believed that God was really going to use him as a deliverer. I think that's why he intervened between that argument between the slave and the, and, and the taskmaster. But what he did was he, he bobbled the opportunity. The timing wasn't right, and so now for another 40 years, the Hebrew people have been enslaved, and I think he's steeped with regret. I think he is chained to loneliness while he loved his wife and he found solace in the mountains of Midian and he loved his sons, when his firstborn was named, he named him Gershom. Do you know what Gershom means? It means I have become an alien in a foreign land. He doesn't name his firstborn son, I'm happy here in Midian, I'm content. He names him, I'm still a foreign, an alien in a foreign land. And add to that, he had to flee Egypt for his very life, which means he probably didn't have time to spend saying goodbye to his parents. And in this 40 years, his parents have died. He missed all that. His brother and sister, he missed 40 years with Ben. He's missed 40 years with the Hebrew people that are enslaved there. He's not a Midianite. And I think he's lonely. And then I think he's chained to his boredom. He spent 40 years tending sheep, being a shepherd. That can be, I think, lonely and somewhat routine. I, I think there may be a bit of boredom that could go along with that. And here's another twist of irony. Do you know what, what, what the Egyptians thought of as the most despicable job in the world? Being a shepherd. Being a shepherd. 
Here's a man who went from being the prince of Egypt to being the lowest of the low, a shepherd of sheep. Now just imagine his diary. Day one, led sheep to grass and water. Day two, led sheep to grass and water. Day three, sprained ankle while leading sheep to grass and water. You see, Egypt had been the land of promise. It was a land of gold and glitter. And he'd spent 40 years in the desert with sheep. I think he was chained to boredom. You see, Moses could have been somebody. He could have lived in a palace, but instead he had to settle for a tent. He could have ruled the greatest nation on the face of the earth, but instead he had to settle for a flock of unruly sheep. He could have saved a nation, but instead he had to save his own neck. Those were heavy chains to carry. Now, what kind of chains are you carrying around? Are you chained to the guilt of your past choices and deeds? Do you carry around a burden that clinks and clanks of the what-ifs and the might-have-beens of your life? You see, we know deep down inside who we really are. When I look in the mirror in the morning, I see a lot more than what you would see if you look at me, because I can see below the surface of the skin, and I know what's really inside isn't really too pretty. I know my thoughts. I know my deeds. I know my actions. I know that what's inside of me is not always what God wants me to be. So, I suspect when you look in the mirror, you see deeper than the surface of your skin, and you see much the same thing. What's inside isn't so pretty. Albert was not known as a particularly handsome man. He always walked to work, and when he did, he always passed this pet store on the way, and he kind of liked to pause for a moment or two in the walk and just look to see what kind of pets were in the window that day, especially in the summertime when the windows are open and, and everything, and, uh, uh, and he would stop and look. And, and one day as Albert passed the pet store, he noticed for the first time the the store owner had a parrot on a stand there, and, and Albert stops and he stares at the parrot, and the parrot stares right back, and after a couple minutes of this staring contest, the parrot finally says, hey, mister. And Albert says, what? And the parrot says, you're ugly. <laughs> Albert turns and goes to work, not a happy man. Comes back the next day, stands there, stares at the parrot. The parrot says, hey, mister, what? You're ugly goes again. This happens four days in a row, and, and Albert can't take any more, but he goes into the store, up to the store owner, tells the whole story, and the store owner is just full of apologies, and he says, I, I, oh, he said, I'm so sorry. He said, I promise, I promise you, the parrot will never say you're ugly again. And Albert said, well, we'll see. So the next day, Albert comes along and gets to the pet store, and he looks into the pet store window and stares at the parrot. The parrot stares back, but doesn't say a word. Albert smiles and turns to walk off. About that time, the parrot says, hey, mister, Albert wheels around and says, what? The parrot said, you know what. <laughs> the fact is, we know what. We know the ugly truth. The devil sticks his hellish finger in our faces, and he says, hey, mister, you're sinfully ugly. And he's right. But thankfully, by his grace, God has broken the chain of our slavery to sin. And I could be what he wants me to be. You can be what he wants you to be by his grace. Are you chained to your regrets? 
You've let powerful opportunities slip through your grasp. You failed. You've messed up your life. You think that all you have left are regrets, that you don't have anything that God could possibly use in your life. Well, let me remind you that if you've failed, if you've messed up, if you've got some regrets, you're in good company. As a matter of fact, God often uses those kinds of people over the people who have it all together because when you have it all together, you don't really need God. But these are the people God has used through the ages. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old to be a father, but he became one. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused, mistreated, and sold from his family. Gideon was scared to death. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young to minister. David had an affair. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God for his very life. Ruth was a foreigner. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus Christ. Paul persecuted and put Christians to death. And yet every one of those, God used in a powerful way. You don't think they had regrets? Sure they did. But God tore away those chains when he said, despite your failures, I can use you. If he can use them, he can use us. Are you chained to loneliness and boredom? I mean, you could have been somebody. You could have done something significant with your life, but instead you've settled for mediocrity. Sometimes you think your life is so dull that being a shepherd sounds adventuresome. But just hang on. Don't lose heart. You just keep making yourself available to God, and you might be surprised at what happens next. Little did Moses realize that when there were 80 candles on his Midian birthday cake, that his life was going to take a turn for an adventure the likes of which he could never imagine. You add up the first 80 years of his life and it was nothing compared to the last 40. But he wasn't so willing to go when he approached that bush that burned but was not consumed and voice of God said, Moses, I'm sending you. Moses' response was not one of, oh, right, let's go. His was, I don't, I don't think so. I just sent in the paperwork for my Midian Social Security retirement checks. I'm, I've turned over the flocks. I, I don't think so. And what Moses does is he picks up the biggest chain that he's been carrying, and he lays it before God. These are the this is the chain of his excuses. Link by link, yard by yard, he's built it over the last 40 years. And so this is what he says. God says, okay, Moses, your turn. It's time to go back. Moses says, I, I'm not qualified. Exodus 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, God must have chuckled at this one. Of all people, Moses is well-suited for this. Moses had grown up in the palace. He had one of the best educations in the world. He was a grandson of the Pharaoh, which also means he had been taught military principles. He had probably been on military maneuvers. After all, if you were potentially in line to be Pharaoh, you'd have to know how to do an army. And so he had that kind of an experience. He understood both Egyptian and Hebrew culture, and now for the last 40 years, he had learned how to navigate through a desert where he would later return. Add to all of that, the Bible indicates that Moses was a handsome guy, and yet he didn't see himself as any of that. He saw himself only as a failure. I don't think we can ever underestimate his sense of inadequacy. Do you ever feel like that? I'm nothing but a nobody. And the problem is, 
when we say things like that, we're focused always on ourselves. Moses' question was, who am I? Why should I do this? How, how could I be qualified? It was all about him, which was not what God wanted him to do. God wanted him to say, okay, I can't do this, but evidently, you, you can, God. When we finally learn it's not about us, it's about God, then that makes the difference. And God's response to him is, you won't be alone. In verse 12, God said, I will be with you. This is an important lesson we need to remember that when we step out in faith, wherever God wants you to go, wherever God sends you, he will never send you alone. He will always be there with you. Wherever he wants you is the best and safest place to be. And so link one of the chain falls into the dust of the Midian desert. Excuse number two. Well, who are you? Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, oh, what is his name? Then what am I going to tell them? Moses' first excuse centered on his own identity and qualifications. His second excuse centers on God's identity and qualifications. In a sense, he doesn't think that the elders of Israel will trust that God's really been talking to him. You, you can see Moses in his mind. He's thinking about his first time back in Egypt and encountering the elders of the Hebrew leadership there. And so he goes up to them and they say, well, Moses, you've been gone 40 years, man. What are you doing back now? Well, I've come to let you go, to deliver you from this slavery. Oh, really? Well, how's it going to be different this time than the last time? Remember when you killed that Egyptian guy? This time God is with me. Oh, really? Well, who is this God that you've been talking to? That's what Moses has got in mind. God's response is profound. God's answer is simply, I am. God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. This, this is so incredible. This means I am the one who is. I am the one who exists. His very name indicates that no other gods exist that everything in Egypt is nothing but stone or metal or wood in images created by human. I'm the one who is. I was, I am, I will be the great I am. He doesn't just exist. He is busy in his existence in identifying himself to Moses. He gave us the most profound description of himself. And did you notice that when Jesus came and began to identify himself to us, he used this very terminology. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door to the sheep pen. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. And when talking to some of the Jewish leaders about Abraham, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because he had just claimed to be God, who indeed he is. What a profound answer. Moses, you just tell him, I am, has sent you. Link number two falls from the chain into the dust of the Midian desert. Excuse number three, what, what if they're skeptical? Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, oh, the Lord didn't appear to you? And God's response is, you deliver the message, I'll do the convincing. In the next verses, it says, then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied, and the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. 
Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take hold of it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, the Lord said, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, Moses had this ordinary stick, a shepherd's staff, and when he threw it on the ground, it became a snake. I, you know, the one, the one part of the verse that convinces me that Abraham, uh, or excuse me, that Moses was an educated man is it says, and he ran from it after it became a snake. <laughs> a man of good education would, would do that. God gave him two other signs. One of them was to simply place his hand, we talked about this last week, into his, into his robe and pull it out and it would be con contagious with incurable leprosy. Put it back in and it would be clean. The third one we oftentimes forget, and that is that God says, go take some water, put it in a jar out of the Nile River, and when you pour it out onto the ground, it will become blood. So long before God turned the whole Nile into blood, the Israelites had seen that deed. Now, now let, me, let me tell you, a, a stick that turns into a writhing snake, uh, a, a, a contagious, incurable disease that's cured instantly and made clean, wa turning water into blood with, with no intervention. You tell me, what is going on in your life that the God who can do those things can't do and handle in your life as well? Is there truly anything in your life that God is powerless to change? Is there anything in your life like a stick that he can't somehow use? Is there anything in you that he can't multiply its value over and over again? Another link falls to the dust. Excuse number four. I don't talk so fine. Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I don't know whether he had a, a speech impediment. I don't know if he stuttered. He, there was a speech issue here, and Moses said, I can't do this. And God's response is, I created you. I can heal you. I'll use you. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And a fourth link of the excuse chain falls off into the dust of the Midian desert. Clutching one last link of the chain, Moses said, Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it, which is the heart of the whole chain. And at this, the Bible says, the anger of God burned against Moses. Under such intense divine heat, that last link melted. Moses went. The chains were broken. And as they say, the rest is history. I'm sure you've heard this week, or you've read this week, or maybe both, that the IU men's basketball Hoosier team are ranked number one uh, going into the preseason polls. I'm incredibly excited for our coaching staff and for the players who work so hard. I tell you, these, these are good men who are doing their best, the coaches and the players, the, 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 everybody. And I'm excited. I'm excited that they've done so well and that everybody else is recognizing they're doing so well. And, and um, I can't wait for the season to start, and I will be cheering just like you all cheer. But for me, IU men's basketball is a spectator sport. You know, I, I don't sit on the bench. I don't get out there on the floor. I don't coach. I don't, I'm just a fan who cheers and am excited for them. 
But when we treat our faith like a spectator sport, it's like saying to God, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. When it comes to being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, it's 100% or it's nothing. No spectators allowed. So when the chain of excuses that's binding you is laid before God, are you really going to verbalize it? I mean, are you going to say, Lord, I just don't have time to pray? Or, Lord, there are others who can serve so much better than I can, I'll just let them do the serving? Or, Lord, I don't have anything to give back to you? Are, are, are we serious? Are we really going to say to the Lord who came seeking us, I don't have time to seek you? Are we really going to say to the Lord who didn't come to be served but to serve, I can't serve? Are we really going to say to the Lord who gave us everything that we have, I don't have anything to give back to you to say thanks? I will be forever grateful that a group of people 50 years ago, a handful of people, started meeting at that House Street site and they prayed and they served and they gave with no excuses. They had no change to weigh them down. All they saw were the possibilities of a God who says, I am, and with I am, nothing is impossible. May He break the chains that keep us bound to our excuses. And may we be found as faithful as those who have gone before us. Mary Slessor was born into a poor Scottish family. Her father was a drunkard. And at the age of 11, Mary Slessor began working in the factories in her home city. She worked at age 11, 12 hours a day, six days a week to provide money so that the family could just survive. Little did she know at the time that everything she experienced would help prepare her for one of the toughest adventures of her life, that which she would do for most of her life, because at age 29 in 1876, this young Scottish female steamed out of Scotland toward the shores of Calabar, which we now know as Nigeria. I mean, if anyone could have excused herself from not going. It was Mary Slessor, a single woman headed into the region of cannibalistic tribes at that day and time, a woman who didn't have much training, a woman who didn't have much support. It could have been Mary Slessor, but she didn't. She gave her life and she spent her life in Africa and died in Africa teaching people about Jesus Christ. The Africans loved her, called her Ma Slessor. But before she went, this is the prayer she wrote down. Lord, the task is impossible for me, but not for thee. Lead the way, and I will follow. Why should I fear? I am on a royal mission. I am in the service of the King of kings. Oh, people, let the chains fall. We're on a royal mission. We serve the King of kings, the great I am, and nothing. Nothing is impossible.